Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Now, regular listeners will know that we aim to have themed shows with our guests taking different perspectives on the same topic. Today's a little bit different, although we're trying to find a theme here. Um, You see if you can do it. So our first guest is um, a podiatric surgeon. Now, we've never had a podiatric surgeon on the show. Today, we're going to rectify the situation by speaking with Dr. Omar Barini. Omar is a fellow of the Australasian College of Podiatric Surgeons, and you guessed it, he operates exclusively on feet and ankles. He's also involved in charity work in developing nations and training other podiatric surgeons. To my chagrin, I know nothing about this foot specialty, so I have loads of questions in store for him. Our second guest is Dr. Jodie Fleming, a clinical and health psychologist. She is also the author of A Hole in My Genes, a memoir filled with her professional and personal experiences of being diagnosed with two primary breast cancers at the age of 37. Later, she discovered she was BRCA1 or BRCA1 positive. We'll be chatting with Jodie about some of the ways she coped with the diagnosis and treatment and just what the BRCA gene means. Plus, the stalwarts of health media, that's Dr. G-Spot and uh, Nurse EpiPen. They'll be co-hosting this show with me, Dr. Malpractice. So put the kettle on, butter the toast, and stay with us for the next hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning, Mal. You're looking particularly lycra. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope to. I'm going. As you know, I've I've been uh, I've had some surgery. Yeah. I had some a, a small cancer, which I'd like to talk to sure. uh, Jody Fleming about. And uh, so I'm going out to test drive an e-bike after the show because I can't quite summons the lung capacity that I need for my normal bike riding. An ecstasy bike. An ecstasy bike, correct? An e-bike. An e-bike. What do you do on an e-bike? You have a little motor. And so ah. Ah, it's a little bit cheating. And oh. I've always thought, oh, God, they're cheats. But <laughs> eat my words. But you need it, yeah. <laughs> so I can go as long as I like and as high up as I like up a hill. But yeah. if I start to puff and lose capacity to function, mm. I can kick on the engine and it'll take me up to the top of the hill. Is it going to be solar powered or? Um, you... No, a little battery. Okay. I'll okay. tell you all about it next time. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward yeah, to this. Yeah, and uh, Dr. G-Spot in as well, joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Malpractice. And well done on getting up to speed on the computer. It's, you know, it's, well, to you millennials, this is like, you know, eating with a knife and fork. It's just so simple. Just, you know, turn it on and off and it should work. Really. Yeah, it's not working for me. Hey, uh, tell us, you've been looking at, uh, of course, because you're a millennial, social media. I, it's how I spend most of my time. 
just don't tell NHMRC that. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I'm lucky enough to do a lot of research on social media and uh, Instagram have been, I suppose if you've been keeping up with the news, Instagram have been really uh, concerned about their users' mental health and body image concerns. And so they've been making quite oh, a lot yeah, of changes. Yeah. yeah, maybe you guys have seen it in the news. And the some of the recent changes are removing likes so that other people can't see how many likes you've got on your posts. Only you can. So it's trying to reduce competition between users. Just on that. Yeah. Um, but you can still click on to, you know, where it says liked by Dr. Mal and others. Mm-hmm. If yes. I click on others, then I can see all the people that have liked your post. You can. Yes, yeah. that's right. So that it's, you can one click away from seeing how many. But in terms of other, <clears throat> pardon me, other people, you won't be able to see. You can only see your own. Really? That's right. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, something... Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I've no, always had trouble with likes sometimes yeah, when I'll it's a terrible one, yeah. story. I can't like a terrible story. That's that's very true, Nurse oh. EpiPen. There should be a range of uh, reactions, shouldn't there? Liked or interested? Yeah. Because you can't or, like a terrible story, You right? can't yeah, like a terrible point. story. Mm. Yeah. I, I agree. It is a bit limited in that capacity, yes. isn't it? And yeah. something that Instagram have been doing recently is removing content around dieting and cosmetic surgery, particularly for under-18s. And the, recent, the most recent change they've had is actually removing all filters that can show people what they'll look like with cosmetic surgery enhancements. Really? I didn't know that was mm. a filter you could do. It is, yeah. yeah. So it's not just dog ears and flower crowns. You can actually see what you'd look like with cosmetic surgery enhancements. Right. And I know from my own research and others that that actually can and does encourage people to, to go and get cosmetic procedures, um, and particularly at younger ages. So I think this is a good move by Instagram. Just remind listeners who may not know you so well what your area of interest is. So I'm a body image researcher and I look at all different kinds of body modification mm. uh, outcomes, which includes cosmetic surgery, eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, mm. etc. Mm. And none of these things are necessarily a good thing, particularly for young mm. people. Mm. Uh, look, I just hopped onto Instagram whilst you were talking. Is that, is that rude? <laughs> no, not at all. So it's should, a very I, millennial thing. I Please should, do. No, I've noticed this actually in cafes. I see people talking and they'll both be using their phones whilst they're talking and I'm thinking hang on that's rude but they don't seem to mind no I think it's just being in touch with everyone simultaneously not just the person in front of you I'd actually thought of an idea of having a cafe where you got to check in your phone at the door oh beautiful like you cannot use it at all you just got because because otherwise you're not staying centered on the person yeah true with, i mean no? why did you bother to catch up with that person really yeah. when you could have just been texting them or you know snapchatting them or something like that you, you've bothered to catch up with them in person so why not give them your full attention we're trying to interact a interact enact a rule at our place where if you if you're on the couch or well, certainly at the dinner table no phones but if you're on the couch watching tv no phones mm-hmm. or you know, tv off or tv off yeah but you, one screen at a time yep can't, definitely yep. can't have two yep. screens you think that would be easy to do wouldn't you <laughs> I mean, personally, I'm speaking personally, it's really hard to yeah. do. Oh, for you? For, for me and for uh, lots of people, sure. Yes. Well, the thing is, if you watch um, Q&A on the ABC on Monday nights, all the, all the streaming and the right. notes underneath, yeah. and you just think, I'm watching that, I'm listening to this, I've got, you know, and I think, give me a break. What, mm. Could we stop having the tweets underneath? Because mm. I just want to listen to the show, but... But it's it's multimedia bombardment, and it gets in the way between human actual human interaction with the flesh sitting next to you. Yeah. Too. I mean, I'm sure thousands of people have talked about this already, but I just love the idea of a cafe where you got to check in your phone. Yeah, 
And like you're checking your coat when you go to a, like, you yeah. know, a show or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Hey, um, tell I know you're very interested in tattoos, Nurse EpiPen. Yeah. And you've been doing some work. Yeah. Well, on I normally like to talk about something in the medical literature. Yeah. But this morning I was sent an interesting story from a Sunrise Channel 7 interview yeah. with a young intern in South Australia. Oh, okay, cool. So at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, she's a first-year intern wanting to train to be an orthopaedic surgeon. Right. And she's nearly completed a full-body tattoo suit, whatever you call a full body. So she's she's got a little bit to go, but apart from that, she's got all these tattoos up and down her legs, down her arms, and a bit up her neck. She's married to a tattoo artist, and they have a business called um, Grim Rape Raptor. Grim and Raptor. Grim Raptor. <laughs> and she has lots of scary animals on her body. So. Wow. Because she, she's into um, dark images. She's an intern. She's an intern. Right. And she says she's one of the most colourful doctors. <laughs> and and the, the catchphrase was the most tattooed doctor. Her name's Sarah Gray. Right. And she's wanting to smash stereotypes. So people that can have different body looks yep. can be, still be recognised and respected as um, their profession. Now, she says that she's been thrown out of cafes because of her body, um, her tattoos. Did them, really? Mm-hmm. And, but in the hospital, she's treated respectfully by patients and other colleagues. And she says for young people, the tattoos can be a, a, a conversation piece so she can break down sort of um, anxiety issues with people and they will want to say, you know, what have you got on and what's that tattoo mean? Mm. And, yeah, so... Um, in part of the interview that uh, was with uh, – they, inter- they filmed her in the Royal Adelaide Hospital and the three interns, a registrar and two other young junior doctors were with her and they were supporting her, but mm. none of them wanted tattoos. Mm, mm, mm. And it's funny, I'm, I, I don't want a tattoo. Mm. I'm not very big on them, mm-hmm. but both my children have them, so mm. a 21-year-old and a 25-year-old. Mm. They're both very interested in music. Um, so, what? How would you? How would you feel if um, somebody came and you're in hospital, having had a procedure, and somebody with a full body suit in a tattoo came to see? You, Dr. I think I'd Jeez. be very interested in their story, as um, as you were saying there, Nurse EpiPen, about looking for meaning. And I think what you're speaking to there is that we do have a generation coming through who most of them do have tattoos, and I think probably younger patients would respond to her better than potentially older patients who have different connotations to mm. to tattoos. Mm. And, and she's if she was wanting to be an orthopaedic surgeon, the College of Surgery or the Royal Australian College of Surgeons is very conservative. Oh so <laughs> anyway, she might be challenging them a bit. So do you think it's a? Uh, um, you know, I always think was that quote by Gertrude Stein is a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? I think it's a good thing. I mean, I personally don't want tattoos, but I think it's great because it encourages diversity. And as she says, it's like, mm. you know, people will ask me about it. Mm. And it's a good way of, of, of breaking down some barriers and mm. open up some conversation. And I think she's, I don't, it's, is forgiven the right word? I think she's been accepted mm. because she's very smart and very bright. Yeah. So yeah. she's confident yeah. and she's a good doctor. Mm. So people will allow they're probably giving her um, a bit of a chance, even though they might not like 
what she's displaying. It was funny, I was in um, Uniqlo in Chadston a couple of weeks ago and there was a woman with a big bandage on her arm and I said, oh, have you hurt yourself? And she leant over the counter and she said, I've got a tattoo and Uniqlo is in, uh, for staff, it's banned. Oh, so tattoo. So, so, so if you see bandaged people in Uniqlo stuff. <laughs> You know, just on that point, I remember um, I uh, needed, was in requirement of an anaesthetist about uh, it was about seventeen years ago, and this funky dude rocked up with spiked blonde hair and earrings <laughs> and metal in his face, and he was just so good, like just amazing. Mm. My, my stress levels went from four thousand billion to like zero, mm, mm. and um, you know, he's forever sort of imprinted in my brain of you know this. It had. It's hard to put words to, which is a very bad thing for a radio uh, co-host. But you know, it didn't matter what the person looked like. It was kind of like his 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 manner was just so much of a part of of it, being a caring doctor. Yes. It kind of all melded into one. It was a really funky dude too. And we had this great chat. Yeah, yeah. So, and in the health area, I know some patients like to tattoo their illnesses. So, oh, diabetic. Right. Oh. I've got pa- a patient that wanted to have splenectomy across their chest, <laughs> and I agree, so that Penny. could be quite helpful. I think tattoos are often used by people to mark occasions in their lives or salient mm. things about themselves. It's not just a you know something they would do flippantly. I think, mm. which, yeah. and people might get the wrong idea. Mm. Mm. We should, in fact, you know, we should do a whole show about the meaning behind tattoos and the way they've been construed in a health way Mm. or in a psychological way. And I think from a health perspective, they're done so carefully and under aseptic techniques, so there's not an infection risk, um, so there's not a risk in that area. I guess it's all the social connotations that we ascribe to it, and it's so much a generational thing, isn't it? Yes, definitely. You are listening to the wise, wise voice of Nurse EpiPen and... uh, the uh, not-so-wise voice of Dr. Mel Practice. That's me and also the incredibly articulate and you are the most scientific person on the panel, I've got to say, um, Dr. G. I think it's stiff competition here, Dr. <laughs> Mel Practice, but thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Indeed, you are listening to 3 Triple R. You know, I often wonder how guests make their way onto our show. Often we get press releases or, um, you know, it's a mate of a friend of somebody. But um, EpiPen, how did, how did our present guest get onto the show? Well, it's very interesting because I did have a little bit of tinea. <laughs> a bit of a fungal infection She's in my feet. You outed yourself with tinea. Yep, I've outed. It's in, over the broadcast now. And I went to my podiatrist and I was saying, you know, we've never done feet and healthy yeah. feet and what's it all about? And and she said to me, that's a really good thing. I don't think I would be the best one to come up to be a guest for your show, but I've got this friend or colleague, Omar, and he is brilliant. And I'm sure he'd come on because he's a great speaker and is doing some great work in this area. Da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> so Omar, Dr. Omar Barani. Barini. Barini, excuse me. Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay. So I'm a podiatrist mm-hmm. at heart and uh, went on to do some further education after my undergraduate training. So pretty much just... Um, did a fellowship with the Australasian College of Podiatric Surgeons, which took me approximately another 10 years of part-time study right. to get to where I am today. 
So, oh, look, I've got to excuse me for my ignorance. I didn't know that podiatrists um, uh, actually operated. So that's that's a uh, misconception yeah. amongst the community. General podiatrists do do some minor uh, surgery, such yeah. as ingrown toenails. Um, podiatric surgeons, on the other hand, uh, which work across the UK, the United States, Spain, do reconstructive foot and ankle procedures. Right. And do you work with uh, orthopaedic surgeons alongside or instead of um, consulting with? How does that work, that relationship? In this, <coughs> excuse me. In Australia, there's not extreme harmony between us and the orthopaedic <laughs> surgeons. <laughs> However, having said that, um, some of my training was with orthopaedic surgeons in both the US and the UK. And with the charity work that I do, I actually travel with about five orthopaedic surgeons from the UK, uh, of which one of them is actually a foot and ankle orthopaedic surgeon. And we, we do a lot of great work together and uh, have mutual respect. So, yeah. Okay, so tell us, what sort of work do you do? Oh, look, the, the bread and butter work, so to speak, is the, the bunions and hammer toes. All right. So that's what uh, most of my patients would come in complaining about, these crooked toes. And uh, I must say that most of them are females. Mm-hmm. Is um, that because of the shoes or...? Oh, look, uh, bunions are a genetic uh, problem. So you're born with a genetic predisposition to have the bunions. Mm-hmm. However, environmental factors such as the footwear will then accelerate the propensity to develop the bunions. And what is a bunion? So a bunion is when the big toe joint starts to deviate and you get that lump developing on the, on the inside part of on the, the inside. On the inside. So you could yeah, you could imagine I guess shoes pushing that toe in. Correct. And Correct. so you get that bump on the outside. Correct. But having said that, um, not every woman that wears high heel footwear will end up with a bunion. So if you don't have the genetic propensity, you you, you won't necessarily develop it. So Dame Edna could be safe. She could, could, could be, could be. Um, and uh, so bunions are one thing you'd operate on. But I imagine surgery would come at the end of a lot of other more uh, sort of um, uh, non-surgical treatment. Correct, correct. So... From, from my perspective, I'm not very knife-happy. And as a patient said to me... You're not knife-happy. I've never knife heard happy. that expression. Well, I had a patient actually in Ballarat say that to me last week. He said, you're, getting, you're very quickly getting a reputation to be the surgeon that doesn't like to operate on people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great reputation. Yes. Yeah, so, look, uh, from my perspective, all non-surgical options need to be exhausted before mm-hmm. I'll take somebody into the operating mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's what I'd like for myself. If I ever saw a surgeon about any, anything, or my mother or my father, you want to make sure that... All options have been exhausted. Yeah. So what, I mean, just out of interest, whilst we got you here, um, what do you do for a bunion? I what mean, before surgery. Before surgery? Uh, look, the common things are trying to accommodate the bunion with wider fitting footwear. So out of those high heels, ladies. Um, as well as looking at devices to put within footwear to try and offload the pressure from the bunion. Uh, so when you're propelling off the big toe joint, you want to minimise the strain. So an arch support can often help to alleviate that pressure right yeah mm. what do you think of thongs <laughs> the ones you put on your feet yeah. flip flops flip flops okay. <laughs> not, yeah, the ones you put on your not feet not the underwear so, so definitely the ones you put well, on your either feet either one yes. <laughs> <laughs> look uh, everything in moderation is, is fine yeah. um, once again it also depends on, on the foot type and the type of thong that you're wearing so yeah. you know we have on the market now a lot of thongs which are orthopedic style thongs which have an arch support built into them so there are they are the lesser evil so to speak right. but i definitely as i advise most of my patients i wouldn't be going to the local shopping center for right. four hours shopping in a pair of thongs it's not, not a good idea yes, you so should be instructed footwear which helps you ambulate more so, comfortably. yeah 
you know, what do you reckon? If I mean, you've got audience of millions right now mm. hanging off your every word. What what do you want to communicate to people about their feet? I mean, what are the sort of the key points we should be taking care of? You know, with our feet. Hygiene is always the big one, mm-hmm. um, and appropriate footwear. People mm-hmm. underestimate how important appropriate footwear is to the longevity of their foot health. I mean, how do you choose that then? How do you choose appropriate footwear? Seeing, getting the advice, professional advice, if, if you're not, if you don't have the information available to you, getting the appropriate advice from a, from a health professional. So podiatrists are great people to speak to in relation to this. And they will tell you what to look for in a pair of shoes which will help you ambulate more comfortably and with far less effort, mm-hmm. which will put less strain on your muscles, less strain on your joints, and working up the body, obviously, it's going to put less strain through other lower limb structures. I was thinking of going to buy sneakers from, say, like Athletes Foot or Foot Locker, and they have those kinds of, well, they say they have those kinds of technologies to tell you what type of shoe would suit your foot. What do you think of what they offer in those stores? I th- look, I think it's great. It's, it's making uh, the general population far more aware that we need to uh, consider these sorts of things when we're looking for footwear. But the disclaimer is that not everybody's feet will uh, work well in the footwear that they're going to give you. So quite often we have patients who come in who have been to uh, Athletes Foot, for example, have been fitted for footwear. They say it felt great for the first two, three weeks, but then it wore off pretty quickly. So your average pair of shoes bought from a store like that will not provide you with the appropriate level of support for long enough if you have particular foot pathology. Oh, if you've got a... Particular yeah. type of pathology. That's yeah. right. So, uh, for f- flat feet which are developing ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, those shoes may help you for a very short period mm-hmm. of time, but the structure will wear down pretty quickly. So, ultimately, seeing a podiatrist for a pair of orthotics, which may cost you a little bit, but will last you 10 years, for example, which can then go into those shoes, will mean that those shoes will then last you much uh, longer. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, I got a pair of orthotics about well, probably three, four years ago. Mm. Major difference. Yep. It's, it's actually it quite does. interesting, yeah, because I hadn't, hadn't uh, thought of even doing that before until somebody said, why don't you try it? So oh. I tried it, yeah. As, as long as you put them into the right shoes. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I was working as a general podiatrist, you know, every now and then you get that patient who comes in after at their four-week review and say, these things are the worst things I've, I've ever had. Did you go through the wearing instruction? Yeah, yeah, that, everything was great. Let's have a look at the orthotics. They take their shoes off and you notice they've put the left orthotic <laughs> in the right shoe and the right orthotic oh in the left shoe. And so then you have to rectify that issue and then they come back four weeks later saying things are great. <laughs> Straight after the show, I'm going to go check my shoes. <laughs> no. yeah, I, I suppose I've got some orthotics, but it, um, two things. One is you have to keep putting them in different shoes and two, being a female to go to work... You, we do need to be looking a little bit professional with our feet wear. Sure. And I don't wear heels because I've had some ankle issues. And um, so uh, it's a tough one to try and get the orthotics in every pair of shoes and also look professional. I'm fine in the weekend when I can wear runners and things. Mm. But, yeah, so you, sometimes I feel I need a couple of pairs of orthotics because – to get dressed up and dressed in the morning, you've got to change them in and out and brush your teeth and answer it the phone. And yeah, uh, speak to your podiatrist about something called a cortothotic, which is made for court shoes. Okay, court shoes, yes. they're little flatty, professional, mm. nice looking women's shoes. Never heard that expression before, mm. right? Court yeah, shoes. shoes or ballet flats. 
way. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. if uh, the patient is resistant to the footwear advice we are giving them to <laughs> give them the best outcomes, then that's probably the best path for you mm-hmm. to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will allow you to wear the orthotic in a much greater range of footwear. Mm-hmm. I've got another question. I have a 20-year-old son and he's had ingrown toenails and he's had them fixed a couple of times. And I'm fessing up, poor old son of mine, he doesn't cut his toenails and they are revolting. And, he, and I think you were talk, touching on foot hygiene or feet hygiene. You know, what? can you tell us what we should be doing with our feet on a daily, you know, routine? Bathing is always very important, good place to start. So uh, make sure your feet are washed daily and very well dried. Drying them is very, very important. So putting on uh, any sort of socks before the feet are dry will help create an environment for things like fungus to develop. And that's where tinea will uh, develop and uh, nail infections could develop also. The other big bed bug for me are people who wear shoes without socks. I, the, the scenario I, I put forward is would you wear the same pair of socks every day without washing them? And the answer is no. So try not to wear shoes without socks. Uh, and if you are going to do that, make sure you're giving yourself at least two or three days of those shoes in the sun before you put them on again. Mm. Mm, I've realised how disgusting I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make some big changes when I get home. <laughs> Good. So, and also um, your heels, so you can get those horrib- that horrible skin cracked heels, avoiding that. Regular moisturising. Yeah. Uh, socks, obviously, to protect the skin. Uh, and once again, you know, things like thongs and open back uh, shoes, uh, especially in the warmer environments, will cause the drying of the skin. So what moisturiser? Just everyday this is, sorbeline? Look, if, if you are consistent enough and you're doing it daily, I would start with just a cheap moisturising cream. Um, and if that's not enough, then move, work your way up to something more expensive like a Ulactyl. Hey, um, Omar, mm. I, I, I used to work with this doctor mm. who used to be a podiatrist. Sure. Fantastic um, person to work with. And uh, we, we, we were working in this office space. It, w- it wasn't sort of high traffic. It was just sort of an office. And uh, it was carpeted. And she encouraged me to walk around without shoes. And it was really good. I mean, is that something that you, you would have an opinion on? Not particularly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think if you want to move towards... There's been a current trend in the last 10 years in relation to barefoot running. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, unfortunately or fortunately for us, we are not born into environments where we are without shoes. Yeah. So for infants, for paediatric patients, we often advise the parents to keep the child without footwear. Oh, okay. For as long as possible, yeah. as long as they're in a safe environment. Sure, of course. That helps yeah. the intrinsic muscles in those feet build. However, because we are in footwear for most of our life, growing up in this, you know, in a first world country, the intrinsic muscles within the feet start to get a little bit weaker, yeah. as yeah. opposed to somebody who's growing up in sub-Saharan Africa who's yeah. without shoes and on a day-to-day basis is having his, the muscles and the bones in the feet working in harmony without that protection. So if going from uh, being in footwear to try and be a barefoot runner without the appropriate program can be quite devastating. 
Aha, mm. right. Yeah. Um, Omar, could, would you, could you just tell us a little bit about your charity work? Mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do charity work predominantly in the Middle East and it's predominantly with refugees uh, and predominantly with Palestinian refugees. We have a team of surgeons and uh, physicians who should be travelling to Lebanon uh, later in November this year. Um, however, with the current uh, trend of events mm. happening there, which sort of a bit on rocks. Um, so we, we try to um, help people who don't have that uh, care available to them in those camps. And unfortunately, with some of the things that we see, especially with some of the paediatric patients, sometimes access to early medical intervention can change their entire life. Would you be talking about club feet? Club feet in particular. Um, so... We saw a girl last year when, when we were there. Unfortunately, we couldn't operate on her due to time constraints. And we know that if we don't get a chance to get to her this year, then it's going to make life a lot more difficult for her in terms of her uh, capacity to be able to walk comfortably. Do you, do you want? Would, would you like to explain club foot feet? Uh, club feet is basically, if you think about a golf club, it's when the child is born with the feet pointing in like a golf club. And so, w- oh. with a, with a child, uh, you know, within the first year or two of life. Quite often you can do very minor surgical procedures or put something called serial casting on to correct that club foot, which will bring the foot back into a normal alignment and, and give them a normal life. Mm. Now, if you miss that window of opportunity in the first two years, then it's very hard and they require much greater reconstructive foot mm. surgery to try and realign that, which quite often is still never perfect. Mm-hmm. So trying to, to capture that sort of group of patient early on can can make a change to people's lives and you know if, if you help one person it's just amazing to see to see you know, what improvement you can make to just even just one person's life you know and it's and it's a it's a small intervention i mean for for a professional to do mm. early on impacts the rest of somebody's the life their, of their family life. everything all the correct. generations down to correct. Yeah. correct so more power to you omar Thank for, you. for doing that sort of work um, thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. For educating us into the uh, ways of uh, podiatric surgery and podiatry. I've got a lot more questions I want to ask you, but <laughs> maybe after the show. Um, thanks so much, mate. Pleasure. Um, you are listening to 3RRR Radio Therapy. It's me, Dr. Mel, practice nurse, EpiPen, and uh, Dr. G Spot. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. <laughs> hey, um, you've read a book, EpiPen. Yes, I have read a book and it's by uh, the very talented and very nice woman sitting next to us, Dr Jodie Fleming. And she's just written a book called A Hole in My Genes. And I think we could ask her to tell us a bit about herself and the book. What about that? How about that? Oh, I hate that. And I have to tell you, (laughs) my imposter syndrome is alive and well sitting here because I listen to your podcast and I know that you usually interview rocket scientists and... And I'm here to uh, talk about boobs, maybe. So I feel like I'm bringing the tone <laughs> down a little bit. It's a bit. pleasant change from the rockets. <laughs> More yes, boobs. Yes. Uh, um, so oh, I don't know what you want to know about me. Um, I, I hate when you start off talking about your job as if that's the only thing mm. that identifies you. Yes. But um, I am a clinical and health psychologist. Um, I'm from Victoria, down in Warrnambool. And, yeah, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> I was working... Um, you know, in the the cancer field 
uh, well before I received my own breast cancer diagnosis and and I guess uh, had my real education about nine years ago when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And a part of my processing of everything that went on, you know, in that year, year and a half, um, sort of was expressed in a journal of letters to my nan. Um, and after the whole treatment, you know, active treatment ended and, and I was supposed to be back to normal again, I stopped writing to her and I realised that um, it had left quite the gap in my life. So I joined an online writing class for about three years and voila, now we have... A book. Wonderful. That's brought me to talk to you guys. Wonderful. So uh, I think I was trying to think of a segue from the um, podiatrist to um, your book and your field and having had a cancer myself, um, the foot-in-mouth syndrome. So uh, there we go. We've, oh, we've, we've linked it in. Dun, 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 dun. We did it. And it's so funny because I refer throughout the book to this coffee table book that I could write about the foot-in-mouth, the things that you shouldn't say to the anxious cancer patient. Um, and there were unfortunately many, many examples of that throughout my experience. Oh, tell us. Oh, my gosh, where do we begin? So early on, and look, I love my surgeon, Phil. Phil, if you're listening, you know I love you. Um, but early on, when I was a real deer in the headlights, um, I turned up to an appointment with him and he came rushing out at the end. I was paying for my consult and he said, oh, Jody, I forgot to give you this. You're vitamin D deficient. You've got to read this article sorry I just tapped the desk and I went down to my next appointment with the oncologist and I was in the waiting room and I thought I'll just have a little read of this article and the very first sentence said uh, women who are diagnosed who are sorry vitamin d deficient when they're diagnosed with breast cancer are more likely to die really yes Yes. So that was like, what? And I went into the uh, oncologist's office and I said, look what Phil just gave me. And she just threw it in the bin. Oh, you don't need to be reading any extra things at the moment, she said. So how, how does somebody be sensitive but not um, too censored in how you speak to somebody with cancer then? I mean, what advice would you give people? Oh, I think number one is to remember that they're a person um, with feelings and emotions um, and not just, uh, I guess, a patient sitting across from you that you need to um, treat and, um, and I don't know, hopefully cure, I suppose. Um, I think that I've thought about this a lot and I think healthcare professionals and especially surgeons and especially oncologists, I suppose, who are working with people who, you know, are facing really serious illnesses and, and um, could potentially die and, and probably do die um, more often than most of us experience with our clientele, um, they need to have some sort of coping mechanism, right, to protect themselves emotionally because that would be a very um, harrowing thing to go into day in and day out. So I wonder sometimes if they just detach a little bit um, in order to uh, cope themselves. But then I think also um, there's the famous sonography girl story in my book where she was uh, ultrasounding the second, what turned out to be the second primary breast cancer on my right breast um, and said, mm, I don't know what that is, but uh, I wouldn't want it in me. And I sometimes wonder, you know, it's it's much easier, I think, when you're looking at a screen just to see the actual uh, tumour or the, the part of the body that you're looking at rather than realising there's a person filled with anxiety and fear, facing their mortality, sitting right in front of you. So I don't think it takes too much to empathise and put ourselves in those 
people's shoes because most of us have um, experienced that death anxiety as a human being. So, yeah. Yes, you, you are on edge. It's a scary diagnosis, especially when you start the, the journey. I can remember having um, a CT scan of my chest wall and the radiologist radiographer said to me, oh, that's bigger than I thought. I'm thinking, oh, please. And then she, then she sort of backed away. But my other one was um, in the dentist and a friend of my sister's uh, was at the desk and I hadn't seen him for a while and he said, oh, how's your cancer going? In front of the dental nurses and all the waiting room. Well, he was short of a, a knuckle sandwich at that stage. I just sort of cowered away and ran out the door. Do you think – I think there's certainly something to say about how um, healthcare providers react to uh, people with, um, I guess, any illness. But what about just friends, family, um, people who you bump into? I mean, what sort of advice would you give them, Jody, in terms of how to respond to you once you know the diagnosis type of thing? Yeah, um, I get asked this a lot actually. And number one, I say show up. Like, <laughs> Don't be so scared off by your own fears or your own um, f- feelings of inadequacy, not knowing what to say. Um, I think it goes a lot further to say to somebody, I don't know what to say, this really sucks, um, than to say nothing at all and disappear. That's a lot more damaging. Um, and, and at the same time, you get to empathise then because it does really suck. Um, you, well, in my experience, at least, it was the people I might not have expected to be there for me that really were. And um, a couple that I really thought, you know, were my people um, that weren't. And they weren't able to for whatever reason. And, you know, a couple of friendships have disappeared because of that. Um, walking down the street, I, you know, I just felt like me. Um, I forgot that I looked different on the outside and, and would often catch a glimpse of the, the girl in the scarf in the reflection of the window and be quite shocked. But I'd also, you know, run into people who um, might cross the road or because they don't know what to say um, and it's too confronting for them. You know, just as you were talking, before you said cross the road, I was thinking of the Lee Sales book on any ordinary day. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It's on my bedside table, though. <laughs> it's it's just it's the most great. magnificent it's book. Great. It's great. She's the second person I've ever written a fan letter to. I didn't know where to send it, so I have it still on my computer. But it was a, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. And I think it was the Stuart Driver. Driver? Diver? Yeah, Diver. Diver. Diver story. I think it was that one where, she, where I think it was him where he said um, people would cross the street. Because yeah. they didn't know what to say to yeah. me. And, you know, this that and I felt this ache. Oh my goodness, how would you be to have suffered all this grief and then people kind of avoid you because they don't know how, what to say? Yeah. I, I love what you said is to talk about the process of, uh, I don't know what to say, but it sucks. Yeah, yeah. it's simple, isn't it? And it's true. So, would you like to touch on the testing for the BRCA1 gene and what is, family? What is it? Yeah. So, would, so you know it's a, um, it's a genetic test. So we all have that gene. We it's, do. It's just some people have a mutation on it and there's the one and the two. Maybe you could, you could, you'd be up to date with all of that. Yeah, well, actually, I'm not, to be honest, because there are quite a few more genetic mutations now that have been um, identified and that they do test for. But at the time of my testing, so nine years ago, um, because I had two primary breast cancers so close in succession and because I was only 37 years old, that was 
pretty well a surefire bet that it was a genetic um, cancer, despite there not being any family history for us. Um, so I think I might be the lucky random <laughs> recipient. Um, so the I have the BRCA1 mutation, which puts me at a, around an 85% increased risk for breast cancer and 60% increased risk for ovarian cancer. So we had... Uh, I had to go through the genetic counselling process early on and, of course, I have a sister and I have um, parents and um, and cousins and, and loads of females in our family and um, I thought it best to uh, offer up the chance for them to also get tested should they need to um, and, and have some uh, ability to make choices that I didn't have the luxury of making. Um, so we went through that process and it was almost uh, when I got my positive test result almost well it very much was a relief for me um, in the lead up to that I, I had not had children uh, yet and um, one of or a couple of the risk factors for breast cancer are the earlier age of having children and having breastfed are real protective factors. And because I hadn't done either of those things and I couldn't really relate to any of the other risk factors, um, I really started giving myself a little bit of a hard time about, you know, I'd put my career ahead of my family, had I done this to myself. And so then to find out, look, look there was always going to be an 85% chance I was more than likely going to get breast cancer, Um it took the control out of my hands and it gave me an explanation and I, I could take that pressure off myself then for having done this to myself. Um, so for me, that was great. But then, of course, that opened a can of worms for the family. family. Mm. Mm. How did you manage that? Um, not very well, apparently. <laughs> for you, personally, didn't manage it well or the, the genetic counsellors would have helped. I know your mother. The genetic counsellors were There's a story about your mother in the book. Yeah, I try not to talk too much about the actual results because some families still don't want to know and yeah. even though they know they should avoid books and um, podcast interviews and things because I might talk about it. Um, so my mum was absolutely petrified and full of guilt that she might have done this to me that she might have given me this um, disease that she had to watch me go through the treatment for. Um, So she didn't want to know. So only my dad and my sister chose to be tested. And um, and then, you know, we had to sort of navigate our way around her not finding out the results no matter which way it went. Um, But it turned out some of the extended family also would have preferred not to have known my result. So um, in hindsight, there I was thinking I was doing the right thing um, because I thought, oh, all of you, there's a few younger than me, you know, if you have the opportunities to um, to screen and, and, you know, early detection saves lives and all of that. Um, and and some of them still hadn't had children and, and I knew that I was going to miss out on having children and I didn't want that for them. Um, so I was very open uh, and a little bit too open and honest. If I had my time again, I'd just rewind and say that I was having the testing done um, if you want to know my mm. results, please ask. Mm. So when we did sort of, when I said um, I have the positive um mutation then um and my family getting tested so if you want to know those results yell out uh nobody did (laughs) really so interesting i'd never heard of of that uh strategy before is that your strategy or did somebody tell you to do that uh what's that the idea of saying hey i'm getting tested 
if you want to know, let me know, but otherwise yeah. I won't tell you. Well, actually, I've, I did a webinar recently for Pink Hope um, talking about that very thing, yeah. how to deal with the difficult conversations when you've got a high risk of cancer. Yeah. And um, a lot of the research that I read uh, recommended that, that backward yeah. step. But obviously I learned that the hard way myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Tell so. us, why did your dad get tested if it's for ovarian and breast cancer? Because um, either parent can carry the mutation. And in a male, if they have, let's say, the BRCA1 mutation, um, they have higher risk of uh, breast cancer still as well yeah. and also prostate cancer and a couple of other cancers, I think, if anyone knows more than I do, um, jump in. Yeah, so they still... and. And, and, of course, there's a 50% chance that they would um, pass that on to any children that they have if they were the carrier, same as with the, the mother. Am I going to put you on the spot by asking what BRCA stands for? Um, I think it's just breast cancer, B-R-C-A. It's the short version. Oh, right. Okay. C-A, yeah. oh, B-R-C-A. Right. Oh, so it's a breast cancer. And then C-A. Is that what, is that what um, Angelina Jolie had? Yes, yes. me and yes. Ange. Yes. <laughs> Except she yes. was in the position of being able to make choices around prophylactic surgeries before she had Preventative before surgery, she yeah. got any cancer, yeah. um, which is what my sister would have chosen to do as well. Right. And in you know doing some talks around the book around the traps, um, I've met many women who were faced with that decision, and I've often said, and I, I fully believe, I you know I had the easier choice because. My boobs were trying to kill me, so I wanted them off. Whereas when you have to make choices to remove healthy tissue, it's a lot more difficult. Mm. And I did mm. make that choice to have a full hysterectomy without, because of how poor screening and diagnosis is around ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, but that was a hard enough choice. Uh, yeah, so tricky stuff. So you would have... Did you have those operations done at the same time with the, the breast operation and also the hysterectomy? Um, I had the lumpectomies um, sort of in the March and the June. Right. And then in the December, I had the um, bilateral mastectomies mm -hmm. and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And then in the f April, I had the prophylactic hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. And then in the July, I had the um, the implant transfer to finish up the... the right. um, it's a lot of operations. Reconstruction. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. I lost track of yeah. how many anaesthetics I had. Absolutely. I was just going to ask about ongoing care for you. Like, are you checking in every few years? What? Um, how are they following you? Yeah, so I'm... I'm um, chasing down the magic 10-year mark now, which will be next March. Um, at the moment, I just have annual visits with my surgeon. I saw my oncologist for the first five years. Um, I had to take hormone therapies, um, tamoxifen and arimidex um, for the first five years. And, yeah, now I just see my surgeon feel once a year. So nice and cruisy for me, luckily. Fantastic. Absolutely. I hope you will celebrate that 10-year mark. Thank you. Me too. Now, the name of the book, Jodie, is called... A Hole in My Jeans with a G. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, it's a little bit of a play on words, but... Um, yeah, it refers to the BRCA mutation and in my faulty genes and, um, yeah. Available much. at all good shops, good bookshops? Well, mostly online okay. at this stage, yeah. So it's Jodie so. Fleming, A Hole in My Genes. So type that into your Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever you use for your search engine. Thank you so much for coming in, Jodie. Oh, thank you so much for having fantastic. me. Fantastic. We've got to have you back on the show because there's loads more to talk yes. about uh, yes. in the book. Oh, yes. You have been listening to Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Malpractice, Nurse EpiPen, and Dr. G-Spot. 
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.